Greetings, friends. I am Mark Huddle, Associate Professor of History at Georgia College and the Director of the College's Center for Georgia Studies. This is our latest conversation in the Center's ongoing collaboration with WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's National Public Radio Affiliate. Poverty in the South. Throughout our long history, the two words have often been joined. Travelers from before the Civil War were quick to note the stunning inequality across the region. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt's Council of Economic Advisors labeled the region, quote, the nation's number one economic problem. As recently as 2017, United Nations Special Rapporteur Philip Alston, surveying economic conditions in rural Alabama, believed that he was seeing the worst and most crushing poverty that he'd ever witnessed in the so-called developed world. Behind the shiny trappings of the Sunbelt growth and development, there's always been, it seems, a harder, colder reality. The South has almost always been the poorest region in the United States, and the Deep South has always been the poorest region in the poorest region. So how do we understand this phenomenon? Our guest, Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt, will help us take the long view of what it is meant to be poor, white, and Southern. Dr. Merritt is an independent scholar who lives and works in Atlanta. Her first book, the award-winning Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, was published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. It is an extraordinary work of political economy that maps the evolving structures of power in the slaveholding South, the emergence and growth of a class of poor whites who were deeply affected by the institution of slavery, and the ways these white Southerners negotiated the margins of a society that often denied their very existence. The book seeks to delineate the interrelationships between race and class in the antebellum South and the impact that slavery had in exacerbating income inequality, as well as conflicts over land, labor, education, and eventually the coming of the Civil War. It is a deeply researched and beautifully written work that one reader referred to as a quote-unquote call to the archives. And frankly, as a professional historian, that might be the best compliment I've ever seen bestowed on a work. And like the very best histories, by invoking the complexities of the past, Masterless Men opens a window into the conditions and controversies over race and class and poverty in our own times. Carrie Lee Merritt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. With an introduction like that, I'll be on any time. <laughs> well, let, let's begin at the beginning. Poverty in the antebellum South. Now, that's no easy topic. You track a, a transient and mostly illiterate population that Southern elites claim didn't even exist. So what are the origins of your study, Masterless Men? What drew you to the study of the antebellum South's poor white population? Well, I think like many historians, we kind of study what we know. And although my parents are, you know, probably the American dream, my ancestors and even my grandparents were not. And I do come from poor white Southerners. And 
my grandmother probably had about a seventh grade education on and off from having to drop out of school to pick cotton or work in cotton mills. And when I started studying Southern history and especially the Civil War era, I realized really quickly that there was an entire class of people, of white people, left out of the narrative. There's lots of great studies on slavery, and there's lots of great studies on slaveholders and even yeoman farmers, people that own land and maybe one or two slaves. But there was almost nothing on poor whites, and I realized that you know, this was not just because they were illiterate. That, of course, makes the research much, much harder. But you can creatively get at that as a researcher. Um, but it was left out in many ways uh, for a political reason. And that was because this narrative, this lost cause narrative of the Civil War, needed to deny that poor whites really existed or that poor whites were not fully in lock and step with whether or not slavery was right and just or whether or not the South should secede or even go fight the Civil War. I see. Well, you, you, you mentioned the, the political uh, angle that, that, that blocks the, this analysis to some degree, um, but you're also trying to give voice to people who in, in the archives are sometimes considered voiceless. How did you go about unpacking those voices? What kind of sources did you have to encounter in order to write your narrative? So for people that look at illiterate Americans, generally, you have to go through just reams and reams and reams of information, you know, hoping to find kind of a diamond in the rough. And I did that with a lot of different record groups, a lot of county court um, records, petitions to state governors, um, different petitions from labor groups, all of these kind of records, just looking through them constantly, both criminal court and civil court. I was helped more than scholars that you know came 10 years before me by the digitization of some records. I think we can't underestimate the power of digitization in revolutionizing history, especially the history of illiterate people, because by the time I was changing my dissertation into a book, the newspapers of antebellum Georgia were online and 19th century Georgia. And that was an amazing help to just search through, you know, hundreds and thousands and thousands of documents with one click of a button and, and actually have answers to things that most people don't talk about. That was immensely helpful. But I also relied heavily on slave narratives, WPA slave narratives, and a group of records from Tennessee that was taken shortly after World War I of Civil War veterans. These are questionnaires to men who had fought both for the Union and the Confederacy in the Civil War. They left very pointed quotes and stories about class in the South. You're listening to a conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Carrie Lee Merritt about Merritt's book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites in Slavery in the Antebellum South. This conversation is one in a series of collaborations between WRGC and Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies to explore new scholarship and research about the American South. We'll return to this conversation with historian Carrie Lee Merritt in a moment. As we think about situating the story that you're telling, I've approached it, obviously, as a, as a work of political economy. 
And in recent years, you know, there's been this spate of masterful studies that have, have situated the South's cotton economy in the, in the context of the evolution and development of modern capitalism, that you know, slavery wasn't some feudal throwback. It was central to the expansion of global markets and the creation of a modern world. And you know, I'm thinking of books like you know, Beckert's Empire of Cotton and Baptist's the, the Half That Has Never Been Told and Walter Johnson's books, especially River of Dark Dreams. As a study in Southern political economy, I think Masterless Men both complements and, and shifts the narrative of these histories of capitalism. Where do you see the work fitting in this conversation? Well, I like to look at whether or not the South was was fully capitalist, gauge you know whether or not it was fully capitalist by looking at the lives of m- most of the people living within the South at that time. And so while I completely agree with people like the school of thought is called you know the historians of capitalism, who argue that the antebellum South was fully capitalist by the Civil War. Yes, I agree that markets were. Yes, I agree that the banking system, the monetary system, all of that was fully capitalist. But when you look at labor, when you look at the way that not only were black people enslaved, but white people had very little labor power, because essentially these poor whites, these people that didn't own land and didn't own slaves, they were essentially competing for both jobs and wages with brutalized enslaved labor. And when you can beat a laborer and to death, basically, you're going to have (laughs) a preference for enslaved labor that you can fully and completely control. So poor whites were really in a conundrum. And I think one of the main things my book shows is that the kind of poverty that the South is still dealing with is not only due to the failure of any kind of reparations to African-Americans after slavery, but also because of the long legacy of, of white poverty in the region as well. And of course, that is, again, tied to slavery, creating this incredibly unequal society. Well, let's take that then and draw it then to the grassroots. You know, as King Cotton consolidated its control across the Deep South, how did the slave system impact those whites at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder? How did it define the lives of these people? So it's different in every region of the South, and the states that I look at are really the Cotton South, the Deep South, South Carolina, Alabama, uh, Georgia, and Mississippi. And so this kind of cotton area is, is where you have you know, the highest percentages of slaves, approaching 50%, if not over 50%. And so to, be, to keep that many people enslaved, you have to have an incredibly, almost a police state, you know, surveillance all the time, people watching you, people knowing what's going on, a lot of censorship, not a lot of education for the masses, anything you can do to keep tight control over that region. And so what it creates, in addition to having all of these poor white men who are underemployed or unemployed, um, it creates this highly, intensely carceral state where poor white men are, are often not working and, and then arrested for vagrancy and shuffled in and out of the criminal justice system. Poor white men become a migratory labor force, essentially, you know, moving from project to project as they're pushed fully out of agricultural labor. They're moving wherever railroads are being made or roads are being laid. And as they do that, that actually leaves a lot of poor white households headed by women for at least part of the year. And so it creates very fractured households. Any of the horrible 
stereotypes that we hear about people of color today. Those are the stereotypes that were absolutely applied to poor whites in the 19th century, that, you know, because they're not stereotypes of race. They're stereotypes of class. And class dictates that if you have a migratory labor force, then there are going to be lots of broken families, lots of people with multiple partners in life. And so all these stereotypes that we hear today were, were certainly the stereotypes that were said about poor whites, that they were, you know, lazy, that they'd rather drink and and smoke instead of work, that they didn't get married and instead were very promiscuous. Because, again, all of these things are connected to poverty. You're listening to a conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Carrie Lee Merritt about Merritt's book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites in Slavery in the Antebellum South. We'll return to this conversation with historian Carrie Lee Merritt in a moment. I'm curious, do you see these people as collateral damage in the sense that there is this, this system that is essentially taking root across the South that is incredibly lucrative, that shapes uh, political, economic, and social institutions? Or is this system in, in some way, does it require that this class exist? Given that there is this sense, I think, in, in the antebellum South and the elite classes that they are, in fact, a destabilizing influence on the society. I'm curious, I guess, as to how they couldn't see that the system itself was creating this class of people. I think that the the most educated slaveholders certainly did know that the system was creating this huge and, and, as I argue, growing class of poor white people. And that's precisely why I argue that in many ways this growing pool of poor whites in the Deep South, that's what pushes upper-class whites into secession, because they really don't know how to deal with with white laborers who are not enslaved. These are white laborers who are oftentimes militant, trying to form nascent unions, banding together and then demanding rights oftentimes. Some some of these groups by the 1850s and the lead-up to secession are actually telling slaveholders that unless you figure out some sort of way to protect our wages from being lowered by, by slavery, you know, we're, we're going to withdraw our support for slavery itself. And so this created almost a three-front war in many ways on, on upper-class whites, because not only were they constantly trying to keep the enslaved down and, and you know, crush out any kind of slave rebellions or riots, they were defending the institution from the north and the rest of the country. And then, you know, poor whites basically opened up a, a three-front war. And I'm talking about in the lead-up to secession and in the Civil War itself. Well, you know, there, there are examples, for instance, uh, free blacks and the, the, you know, the emergence of an African colonization movement, you know, to deal with a marginalized population that also is considered subversive. You can siphon it off. I was thinking about that in in the sections of the book in which you discuss the debates over the Homestead Acts and later in the book, the Southern Homestead Act after the war. If there was a recognition that the system was creating this group of people that, that ultimately were destabilizing, why do you think there was such resistance to maybe creating opportunities to move those people out to maintain at least the perception of a more balanced society? Well, so there's 
several different things going on in this time. Um, one of the things is is that elite Southerners, upper class white Southerners, don't want poor whites to move west and populate all these states because as they're moving out, they know they're literally moving away from the stain of slavery. And they hated slavery. They knew what slavery did to their jobs and wages. So as they moved out west in these territories that would eventually become states, you know, they, they would vote for uh, to have free labor instead of slavery. And so they were very afraid of losing their uh, overwhelming power in the United States government at this time. Um, and you also see with free blacks, as you mentioned, by the 1850s, every single southern state in the Deep South was really trying to figure out what to do with free blacks. And there weren't that many outside of Louisiana, and then some in Charleston, really mainly Charleston. South Carolina had some, but concentrated in Charleston. This free black population was growing in some places. How are you going to keep there being any demarcation between you know these categories that are supposed to be black slave, white free? And then things were getting really, really messy racially. A lot of people couldn't tell certain people's race and therefore their status by just looking at them. You have to remember, too, that, that poor whites are laboring in the field in the hot sun before sunscreen and things like that. Their skin gets dark brown and gets wizened. People that have worked in agriculture for decades don't necessarily look white anymore. And so there is this kind of crisis in race, and upper-class Southerners are wondering what to do. By the 1850s, some of them are actually even talking about dividing labor, really having a demarcation in labor where black slaves would only do agricultural labor. Anybody who was black would be doing agricultural labor. And then that left open any of the kind of you know, new industries or, or mills, mill work, cotton mills, that would all go to poor whites. Didn't George Fitzhugh at, at some point argue for the potential enslavement of poor whites as well, that slavery was something that could be extended across racial lines because of its stabilizing influences, I guess, on the population. Absolutely. So by the late 1850s, all of these southern states are basically telling free blacks, you better pick whether or not you're, you should leave the state, go ahead and flee the state, or if you remain in our state, you basically pick a de facto master. You're putting all sorts of legal sanctions on free blacks in their states to, to basically re-enslave them. At the same time, what that's doing to poor whites is probably scaring them to the extent they knew what was going on. But yes, there's this whole push at the same time by um, really uh, mainly Charleston elite men who are arguing for slavery in the abstract. And slavery in the abstract just goes back to the old idea of, you know, so there's slavery in the Bible. People have always had slavery, the positive good theory. And, and they started arguing that race actually didn't really matter, that it was station in life. And so if you're born poor in life, you were born to be a laborer, no matter if you're black or white. And so that there could be different stages of unfree labor to integrate really into Southern society. You're listening to a conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Carrie Lee Merritt about Merritt's book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. This conversation is one in a series of collaborations between WRGC and Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies to explore new scholarship and research about the American South. We'll return to this conversation with historian Carrie Lee Merritt in a moment.
so we have this ongoing series of conflicts over land and labor. People are, in effect, locked out of the market economy. How does it determine how these people live? What was day-to-day life like for the poor white class in this period? So, again, it, it really depended where you lived and, and, you know, what kind of family support or any other kind of support that you had. But life was hard. It was hard. There were definitely periods of hunger and want for most of these people. Many of them uh, had very little other than the clothes on their backs and maybe a few pieces of furniture. And this was cyclical poverty. You know, this was, this was really something, if you were born into this station in life, you're never going to leave it because in the Deep South, you have no system of public education. And quite frankly, even if you did at this time, poor children would not be going there because their labor is needed at home. Their labor is needed in the fields or in the factories. And so, I mean, it, it really was just a cyclical culture of poverty. It bred, there was a lot of alcoholism. Because of that fact, partially, and also because of the fact that living in this, you know, slave society makes everyone incredibly violent, there was a whole lot of domestic abuse, wife abuse, children being killed by their parents. It was a very dark society in many ways. I mean, there's a lot of sadness and, and anger and still so much, I think, to be revealed about kind of the depths of the South's problems. Was the elite response to this or lack of a response to this, I mean, is, is it rooted simply in this kind of states' rights ideology, this intense localism, or, you know, are these things feeding off of each other in a way? I, I can't understand, for instance, the, the lack of public education in the South. What was the threat of public education? I posit that the threat is that there's this huge underground economy going on between poor whites and blacks at a time. Usually what's happening is that blacks are, you know, basically taking whatever they're raising on the plantation and trading them at night with poor whites, sometimes usually for liquor. But, you know, there's this huge underground economy going on. Planters are fully aware of it. They're, they're arresting poor whites all the time for it. They're whipping slaves all the time for it. So they know that if poor whites actually learn how to read and write and, and can communicate well, then there's a chance that they will educate slaves. And, and I think that was a real fear. But I also think they just thought there was no use to it. You know, why educate people who they honestly believed were born to be simple farm workers or simple factory workers? I mean, they really, really believed in a highly classist society. You also argue that, that this class of poor whites made mobilization for and the prosecution of the Confederate war effort much more difficult. Uh, how was that? Well, I argue that most of the men in the Deep South who were poor whites were not willing participants in either secession or in joining the Confederacy and didn't actually join the Confederacy out of free will aside from some very, you know, self-interested motives about earning a good wage or earning honor or, you know, the possibility of getting land if you're a veteran. But most of them just wanted to be left at home with their families. They really didn't know what was going on at a national level. They weren't aware of all the debates going on. They, They didn't care. They just wanted to be left alone. There was no way they wanted to go fight and die to protect the slaves of really wealthy men who had always oppressed them as well. And so what we see is there's a conscription act 
by the Confederate government in 1862. Now, once that happens, you really start hearing about a rich man's war and a poor man's fight, because all these poor men are being conscripted and forced to fight. Well, because of that, and, and that coupled with what's called the 20 Negro Act, which exempts the largest, richest slaveholders who owned more than 19 slaves from having to go and fight. They got to stay home. All this class resentment basically makes so many poor white men desert home. And they're deserting home because they don't believe in the cause. They don't want to be there. But also their families are starving by this point in the war. You know, rich cotton planters had planted cotton yet again instead of corn to feed the actual citizens of their states. And people are starving. They're running back home, escaping. Desertion is off the charts. By 1864, you've got two-thirds of the Confederate Army gone. You're listening to a conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Carrie Lee Merritt about Merritt's book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites in Slavery in the Antebellum South. We'll return to this conversation with historian Carrie Lee Merritt in a moment. One of the things that I've enjoy so much about about the book i think you know our training as as historians is is so generational the fields that we study are constantly evolving and changing and being revised and and 20 25 years ago when i was starting in graduate school the Heronvolk thesis of racial unity was this sort of dominant idea so I was writing, for instance, uh, my master's thesis was about uh, Wesleyan Methodist abolitionists in North Carolina. And there was this small circuit of churches in the Piedmont area that, that somehow maintained this abolitionist gospel over about a 12-year span of time. And basically, I couldn't figure out why those people were, were there. I portrayed them essentially as an anomaly. And it's especially in the face of the sort of dominant ideological positions of the, of the Heronvolk in that area. But as I read your book, I, I, of course, began to realize these are your people. This, these were the poor whites. The census records showed that these were tenant farmers and they were mechanics and they essentially were living this very hard scrabble life. And here they were kind of outside of the mainstream, even in, in their religious life. I wonder, as you were doing this, how did it start to you know, shape the questions that you were asking? What were the questions that were, in, in effect, I think, left hanging in your mind uh, as you brought this thing to completion? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever had a question like that. Wow, maybe, maybe the fact of just how racism worked back then on, uh, on the level of poor whites. Obviously, it's very, very clear how it worked for upper-class elite whites. But I think it was much more complicated for poor whites because many of them did have personal relationships uh, with African-Americans. Many of them did, even, even though if they were racist, did at least probably feel some sort of empathy with enslaved people that many times they were laboring side by side with. The Deep South was actually much more interracial, intercultural than any of us give it credit for. And so I think that really complicates the narrative of the Heronvolk democracy. And I think there is a Heronvolk democracy, but it comes about really in early Reconstruction, after a few years of Reconstruction. 
But during this time, there was a lot of racial mixing. There was a lot of interracial sex. And so greatly complicates what we think about white racism in the antebellum South, because even if these people were incredibly racist, they were at least willing to make exceptions, I guess is the best word, for people they personally knew or are at times that they, they needed to have relationships with the enslaved. One of the more controversial sections, if, if that's the correct word, of Masterless Men, I think, describes what you call the dual emancipation that's wrought by the war. Essentially, both slaves and, and poor whites were freed by the collapse of the Confederacy and the demise of, of slavery, even if the materialist impact of, of these emancipations was very different. You know, this idea has floated around you know, for more than a century. Some uh, have argued that it, it's tangled pedigree and the ways in which it was deployed by pro-Confederate historians to quite literally whitewash uh, the history of Reconstruction makes it exceedingly problematic. How do you respond to those critics? Well, I mean, that certainly is true, but the people that were using this term dual emancipation to describe the situation of poor whites in, in Reconstruction were actually African-American scholars, first and foremost. The long-running editor of the Journal of Negro History was one of the first, as well as W.E.B. Du Bois. These are terms that they used, and they used them obviously knowing that the readers were not going to equate whatever um, kind of you know, freedoms that poor whites gained you know, with the, the actual freedom from slavery. That's not it. But it's in recognizing that both groups of people, that their interests were, were bound together in a way that more white people in the South need to recognize, more white people in America need to recognize that their interests are tied with people of color when you're fighting against a very small, very wealthy elite who essentially controls every aspect of society. Well, these are the functions of power, right? I mean, you, even though that experience was lived differently by whites and blacks. There is this reconfiguration of the power relationships in the society. And, and I think, you know, early histories of, of it kind of appropriate the idea to, to portray whatever ideological argument the historian happens to be trying to make at the time. And it's probably pretty telling, too, that you know, the so-called uh, neo-Confederates, you know, people like Dunning and you know, Frank Owsley, get some ink in your first chapter. You know, people like that are the historians that, that people are reading. They're the people who are presidents of the American Historical Association. And then somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, his classic Black Reconstruction, can't even get a, a review in the American Historical Review. And there you have, you know, one of the first people to really, you know, in, invoke that idea of dual emancipation. So again, it, it all seems to kind of come back to whatever the present concerns uh, of the society happen to be at any given time, which kind of leads me to, you know, my next, my next question. Because, you know, I'm a believer in the idea that history is really only valuable if it can tell us something about ourselves in the here and now. Otherwise, it's you know, reduced to some sort of blue-haired antiquarianism. And mm -hmm. in a different forum, you made an impassioned plea for what you call an activist history. What, what did you mean by that? How does the story you tell in Masterless 
men explain something maybe about our current dilemma? Well, I, I, I've had a lot of traction from masterless men in explaining the, the Trump dilemma, obviously, because what it is is a classic American story of every time there are large numbers of poor people and poor people who aren't usually given the education and the tools to understand fully many times why they're poor and what could be done to alleviate their problems. They're just completely manipulated by the upper class elites, by the white elites. And it's always been this way in this country. Whenever there's a moment where the white elite think that poor whites, working class whites might band together, whether politically, economically, socially, with people of color, there is always an intense campaign of racism that they, that they start rolling out. And they really start stoking the racist flames and doing everything in their power to make poor whites try to see that, not realize, but um, pull the wool over poor whites' eyes, really, um, and try to make them feel some kind of common interest as white people instead of, you know, as laborers or as poor people or working class people. They constantly thwart any kind of working class solidarity by by starting to really embroil racism. And we see this because who controls the media, right? Who right. controls the media for the large part? It's people with money and power. And so if you control the media and the narrative, then a lot of times it's easy to get that racist message out. Well, so, so what's the role of the historian then in this particular social context? Well, I think it's, it's doing things like this, doing, doing a show like you're doing, actually speaking to the general public who many times haven't had the opportunity of a good education in American history. You know, there's 30 to 40 years of Civil War and slavery history that's probably not in any textbook in the, in the entire United States on a high school level. There's a whole lot of work to be done in educating people, but at least for now, we need to just be out in the media trying to communicate to as many people as possible about what's going on, the historical precedents for it, and kind of give them reason and meaning as to what's happening right now. You're listening to a conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Carrie Lee Merritt about Merritt's book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. This conversation is one in a series of collaborations between WRGC and Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies to explore new scholarship and research about the American South. We'll return to this conversation with historian Carrie Lee Merritt in a moment. You recently published uh, something on the uh, Smithsonian Magazine website that I thought was really interesting. It was a kind of a part review of the new PBS series, documentary series on Reconstruction, but it's, it's really also a call for a new documentary on the Civil War. And embedded in there is a, a nice little critique of Ken Burns, you know, a series that honestly has kind of reached an iconic status, I think, across American culture. What is it about, for instance, the way the, the story of the Civil War is told in the Ken Burns series 
why do you think it needs to be changed or revised or updated? Well, I want to preface this with I loved the Ken Burns Civil War series growing up. And as a, you know, as a teenager, I, I loved everything about it. It's part of the reason that brought me into studying the Civil War. But now, as a professional historian, and again, 30 years since it's been put out, you know, there needs to be an update because it was very much kind of nostalgic and, and emotional and did end up in many ways venerating the cause of, of white Confederates. The kind of damage that's been done to racial progress or any talk of, of the realities of the racial wealth gap in America, any of that kind of stuff. You can look back to Ken Burns and see it's not mentioned at all. You know, none of this, any kind of, of history on race is all minimized in slavery. It's all minimized in order to tell this really nice, conciliatory American story of, you know, everybody was fighting for something they believed in, and, and therefore we can find honor in that when, you know, that wasn't reality at all. And again, Burns is working with what he knew 30 years ago, but it, it's definitely time to update it now because we know so much more. Well, I could safely say that before I read the comments uh, on that piece, I didn't know that Shelby Foote was carved into the side of Stone Mountain. He seems to have, have reached an almost superhuman a capacity with a lot of people who look to that documentary series as a touchstone. And I want to go on the record, too, and say that I loved the Ken Burns series when it was on, too. I watched it all the time. So no hate emails, please. But I also can certainly sympathize and, and agree with the fact that, you know, we have started to see some really interesting public history being done through a documentary, Anna DuVernay's you know, 13, for instance, this, this new series on Reconstruction. And I think something that really that draws out the complexities and the powerful racial issues that were percolating during the time of the Civil War would be really, really welcome. I also think, though, that we all tell stories and we all like to hear certain stories. The stories we tell ourselves are you know, meant to make us feel better and perhaps create some context for not just for the world that we live in, but also the world that we would, would like to see. I think that one of the things about the Ken Burns series that makes it so powerful is the fact that it tells a certain kind of story. I remember having an experience after the novel Cold Mountain came out. And I was living in Massachusetts at the time, and I was at a dinner party, and a gentleman who I believe was a local physician in Haverhill, Massachusetts, began to go on and on and on and on and on about how great he thought the book Cold Mountain was. And I, without thinking about it, I don't want to say I dismissed it, but I, I commented that there are certain stories that the South likes to tell itself. Mm -hmm. um, Cold Mountain fit that template to me, and... This person erupted. It was as if I had overtly criticized the Bible or, or, or something. And that really drove home a point about how people consume stories about the past. And I, I know that that's sort of one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about what, what you think the role of the professional historian is. I appreciate the work you're doing as a public intellectual I also know that, that people are consuming stories about the past from a variety of different sources, mm -hmm. uh, most of which aren't professional historians. And so 
besides fighting the good fight, I wonder, and this is for, you know, a question for my students as well, which is, you know, how does the historian operate and do their work in a world in which people are, are in a lot of ways, not looking for some sort of objective truth, but are looking for the kind of story that ultimately makes them feel better about themselves. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so deeply tied psychologically to the you know identities of so many of us, and particularly white Southerners, I think. <laughs> it's a tough thing to navigate, but as you said, you know, there are people, most of the sources that are putting out history for Americans to consume are not professionally trained sources. They're not even fact-based, you know, fact-check sources. And a lot of what's put out is just completely incorrect. It's complete garbage. And so that's, that's kind of why I do see this as our call to arms, is that people are going to consume it whether or not we produce it. So therefore, we should be the ones out there producing it. And what I'm trying to do right now is I'm not sure that I, I know I will never write another university press book. I'm not sure that I will write another academic book. We'll see if that happens. I'll certainly write another book, but maybe not an academic book. I think that the formats that people are learning in, especially the younger generations, is we've got to start moving to audio and video more as historians. We've got to start appealing to people's other senses. We've got to start um, where we can, you know, cash in on star power if we need to, whatever. You know, we've got to get people actually interested in the history of our past because, I mean, we're at a bad place politically. We're at a really bad place politically, and the next few years are not going to get any easier. And in figuring out how to fix any of this stuff, you've got to go back to history and figure out how we got there to begin with. Well, Carrie Lee Merritt, we are out of time, and I think that is a perfect place to end this interview. Thank you once again for taking the time to chat with us and Congratulations on, on Masterless Men. And I, for one, am looking forward to seeing what you're going to do next. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Rarely a day goes by when we don't see some media report about how little Americans know or understand about their own history. Our ignorance is fobbed off on our faulty educational system, perhaps a general lack of interest, even laziness. Those stories provide fodder for late night comedians looking for an easy laugh. But I have another theory. I think that for many, the refusal to engage the past is a conscious choice. We don't really want to hear and know about the past. We'd rather repeat the myths and outright lies that allow us to comprehend and justify our place in this world. So to openly and honestly engage America's conflicted histories, to face up to the contradictions and paradoxes of being an American would render moot most of the stories that we'd prefer to tell about ourselves. In that context, the teaching, writing, even reading of history is a subversive act. I mentioned that one of Carrie Lee Merritt's readers saw her book as a call to the archives, and that's a testament to the power of a talented researcher and writer. 
There are no easy answers. There's only dogged research and the crafting of a narrative that explains that research. And the relevance of that work lies ultimately in what it can tell us about ourselves in the here and now. There are no moonlight and magnolias in Dr. Merritt's Antebellum South. The poor whites that she studies in Masterless Men are rendered human, which is to say their lives and experiences are rendered as complicated things as they struggle to make meaning of their lives and to survive. By drawing their stories into the broader narrative of the antebellum South, our sense of that time and place and the evolution of the structures of power that define them are changed, gain subtlety and nuance, and afford us a greater understanding of race, class, and gender in that world and in our own. You've been listening to our latest conversation as part of the ongoing collaboration between Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies and WRGC 88.3. My name is Mark Huddle, and thank you for listening.